there are some books of the Bible that when you turn to them, the pages still stick together. That means they've been neglected. They're the slighted slices of the Scripture. You know, there'll be folks in heaven who bump into Ezekiel and they'll end up embarrassed. What if Ezekiel asks you, hey, did you like my book? And you have to tell him, sorry, Zeke, never read it. That's not what you want to say. Hey, you'll be glad that you were here tonight. Ezekiel received vivid visions. He had practical insights. The prophet was given a glimpse, a majestic glimpse of God's throne. He saw God's Shekinah glory slowly, gradually, reluctantly leaving the temple in Jerusalem. In the book of Ezekiel, we'll read several fascinating prophecies about various nations that we can look back on today and observe the prophecy's precise fulfillment. Ezekiel sees into the distant future and he describes Israel's future restoration, events that were fulfilled in the 20th century, specifically in 1948 and in 1967. Ezekiel's prophecies are amazingly contemporary, some of which are being fulfilled either at this very moment or in the not-so-distant future. In fact, this book provides us most of the background that helps us understand John's New Testament prophecy, the Revelation. Now, it's interesting that Ezekiel was a contemporary of both Jeremiah and Daniel. Certainly, he knew both men. Ezekiel lived in Babel along with Daniel. He mentions Daniel three times in his book. Tradition tells us that while he was still in Jerusalem, he was a student of Jeremiah. Now, remember the Babylonians, they were used by God to judge Judah. Three times they invaded the city of Jerusalem and they deported the Jews back to Babylon. The first time was in 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he took several leading Jewish young men back to Babel to serve in his royal court, one of which was a man named Daniel. The second deportation of Jews occurred in 597 B.C. when 10,000 Jews including the prophet Ezekiel, were taken captive along with their young king, Jeconiah. So while Jeremiah served the Jews who were left in Jerusalem and basically oversaw their collapse, Daniel and Ezekiel served the Lord in Babylon. Daniel was given a position in the Babylonian palace. Ezekiel served in the Babylonian countryside among the Jewish exiles. Jeremiah looked through sobbing eyes. He was the weeping prophet. Ezekiel saw through surreal eyes. Ezekiel was a visionary. He was a Hebrew mystic. He possessed a spiritual sensitivity and an otherworldliness. His head was in the heavens. Now remember, the theme of Isaiah was the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah spoke about the judgment of the Lord. Daniel, the next book, will major on the kingdom of the Lord. Hosea's story teaches us about the faithfulness of the Lord, but the theme in Ezekiel is the glory of the Lord. The key phrase in this book, it's used 62 times in 27 of the 48 chapters, is the phrase, they shall know that I am God. You see, Ezekiel saw the Almighty. 
He saw firsthand the Shekinah, the indescribable glory of God. He begins with the description of the vision he saw when God first called him. He sees God's throne, his throne chariot, and the glory that surrounded it. We begin Ezekiel chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chibar, that the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. Now Ezekiel dates his prophecy in the 30th year. And so the question becomes, the 30th year of what? Most likely, it was the 30th year of his life. It was when he received his calling from God. And he tells us where it happened. It was among the captives by the river Chibar. This was a canal that had been built by Nebuchadnezzar to carry ships from between Babylon's two major rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. The Chibar is in what is today modern Iraq. It's 50 miles southeast of Babel, near the city of Nippur, a primary Jewish settlement at the time. Now, according to chapter 3, verse 15, Ezekiel's hometown was a city called Tel Aviv, or literally Tel Aviv, a city in this same area. In fact, the modern-day Israeli city, Tel Aviv, took its name from Ezekiel's hometown back in Babylon. Realize this region on the Chibar is 40 miles from the traditional site of the home of Noah. It's 100 miles from Eridu, which was the traditional site of the Garden of Eden. This may explain why Ezekiel mentions both Noah and Eden in his book. Today, this whole region in Iraq is known as Al-Kifl, which is Arabic for Ezekiel. In fact, the tomb of Ezekiel is located in this region. Once cared for for by Iraqi Jews and visited by Jewish pilgrims, today it's a Muslim holy site. All the Jews there have been displaced. And it was here that Ezekiel received, as he says, visions of God. Now remember, back in Psalm, Psalm 137, This was a psalm written by the Jewish exiles. And they cried out in Psalm 137, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. Apparently the exiles were weeping, but Ezekiel was peeping. The eyes of his contemporaries were full of tears, but his eyes were on God. During the nation's darkest hour, God showed Ezekiel visions of his glory. We'll discover that Ezekiel was not only a prophet, he was a Jewish priest as well. And according to Numbers chapter 4 verse 3, a priest couldn't begin his ministry until he was 30 years old. Think of what this meant for Ezekiel. He had trained his whole life for the priesthood to serve in the Jewish temple. Now the day comes. He's turning 30 when he can finally ply his trade and be used of God and fulfill his calling. But he's 600 miles from Jerusalem and the temple. I mean, it'd be like turning 16 only to learn that the night before they changed the driving age to 21. What a letdown. 
It could have been a depressing year for Ezekiel had he not had his eyes on God. But God takes this priest and makes him a prophet. He'll be God's mouthpiece to God's people, and it all begins with a vision of God. And this is the starting point for every man or woman of God. You can't serve God effectively until you see Him clearly. Ezekiel learned that when it comes to our lives with God, seeing comes before serving. Knowing comes before doing. See, many new Christians, I get all excited about serving the Lord without realizing that the primary reason God saves us is for us to know Him. Serving is secondary. You remember Martha? She was busy running around the kitchen preparing dinner for Jesus while her sister Mary had slipped off and was sitting at Jesus' feet. Luke chapter 10 verse 40 sums up the situation. Martha was distracted with much serving, we're told. And when she asked Jesus to rebuke her sister Mary for shirking her duties, Jesus told her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed And Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Always remember in our relationship with Jesus, seeing and knowing always comes before serving and doing. Well, Verse 2 tells us, On the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the river Chabar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. The book of Ezekiel will be very specific about dates. This vision occurred on what we call July the 31st, 593 B.C. Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north. A great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. And brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. Ezekiel sees this celestial fireball descending from the north. And though it's hard for us southerners to admit that it's true, whenever the Bible speaks of heaven, it always locates it. In the north. Sorry. Isaiah 14 verse 13. Psalm 48 verse 2. You can refer to them later. They're examples. Psalm 75 verse 6 tells us. For exaltation comes neither from the east. Nor from the west. Nor from the south. But God is judged. So that puts God where? In the north. The implication is that God is in the north. Now, Ezekiel, he sees this heavenly fireball with this explosive center. Flames are shooting out of its core and lapping up over the cloud. Imagine a brush fire contained in a capsule. It's blowing in from the north. It's pulsating and palpitating and throbbing. It's a fireball with a pulse. Ezekiel mentions an amber color. The Hebrew word refers to a brilliant burnished metal a silver and gold compound. This cloud looked like polished brass. Now let me give you an overview of what Ezekiel was seeing. 
He was beholding a vision of God's throne. But not the type of throne that you probably imagine when I say that word. This wasn't a stationary, ornate, elevated chair. God's throne is part throne and part chariot. God's throne has wheels that are supported by angels with wings. God's throne moves. It travels on the back of angels called cherubim. You've heard of horsepower? Well, God's throne is propelled by angel power. You remember the gold box that sat in the Holy of Holies in the temple, the Ark of the Covenant. It was a replica of God's throne in heaven. And it's interesting that in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 18, that Ark is called a chariot. When we go to Israel and visit the Galilean city of Capernaum, there is a carving of the Ark and its own wheels. Remember how Elijah was taken to heaven? This wasn't just an Uber driver, an angelic limo. God's own fiery chariot came in a whirlwind. God wanted to pick up Elijah, and so he revved up his throne, and he swooped in to pick up the prophet personally. I like Deuteronomy 33, verse 26. There is no one like God who rides the heavens to help you, and in his excellency on the clouds. God rides the heavens to help you. 2 Samuel 22 verse 11 tells us that he rode upon a cherub and flew. He was seen upon the wings of the wind. See, God is always on the move. Don't think of him sitting in some chair stationary. He rides the heavens on his throne chariot. And Ezekiel saw this amazing sight. He saw it in a vision. What's important for us to realize is that one day we'll see it too, but not in a vision. We'll see it in reality. He continues in verse 5. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Now I'm sure Ezekiel figured nothing could exist in this raging incinerator he was seeing. Yet suddenly from the midst of the fireball come four living creatures. Now, it's interesting that this is also what John the Revelator describes in Revelation chapter 4. Four living creatures accompanying God's throne. The description that John gives is very, very similar to what we have here in Ezekiel. We also know that from Ezekiel 10 verse 15, that these living creatures were a brand of angel known as cherubim. You see, angels come in different ranks. In roles and types. The first mention of a cherub is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, where a cherub was stationed by the tree of life to block man's entrance. The Bible tells us that the devil, that Lucifer, was once the anointed cherub. We also know that two gold molten cherubs adorned the top of the ark. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4 refers to God as the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. Other passages for your study include Psalm 80, verse 1, Psalm 99, verse 1, and Isaiah 37, verse 16. 
These living creatures or cherubim are always associated with God's throne. They're his attendants. Verse 6 tells us each one had four faces and each one had four wings. You've heard of someone being two-faced? Well, these angels were four-faced. But as we'll see, they weren't two-faced in that they were concealing the truth. No, they were four-faced in that they were revealing the truth. And they had wings. But not just two, they had four. This represented the best in aerodynamic technology. We're told their legs were straight. And the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. Now, why the mention of its feet? According to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 3, the shape of an animal's hoof was a way to distinguish between clean and unclean. The split hoof of a calf was a mark of a clean animal. Perhaps Ezekiel is noting their feet to let us know that these four angels, they're clean, they're pure, they're holy. Could it be that the evil Satan has a whole hoof? He continues their description in verse 8. The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides. And each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. You remember on the top of the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, the wings of the two cherubim, the golden cherubim, touched over the middle of the box. See, every detail in the tabernacle resembled uh, God's actual throne. He says, and the creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. Now, since each cherub had four faces, each looking in a different direction, they never had to turn. They never had to back up. Reminds me of when I taught my kids how to drive. I always stressed, never back up. Don't back up, son, unless you have to. Use reverse only if mandatory. It's true in life. In life and in driving, bad stuff happens when you need to back up. So, any direction that these angels moved, they were going forward. This means God's throne chariot has an omnidirectional drivetrain. Probably with an eternal warranty, no doubt. It moves suddenly in any direction. It can stop on a dime. It can shift directions without a turn radius. This is a cool machine living machine. So these living creatures each had four faces, they had four wings, they had human-like hands under their wings, and they sported a shoe shine. Their hooves sparkled like polished bronze. Ezekiel sees an amazing sight. And then verse 10, as for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces. Each of the cherubs had the face of a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And all four faces represented an attribute of God. Man is the smartest creature on earth. He represents God's intelligence. The lion is the king of beasts. He speaks of God's majesty. The ox is a pack animal, a servant, and is a picture of God's faithfulness. 
Whereas the eagle soars through the heavens and is a reminder of God's sovereignty, that He is over all. It's interesting that in the wilderness, God's glory dwelt in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was surrounded by 12 tribes. Four of the tribes were camped on the east side of the tabernacle under the banner of Judah the lion. Westward were the four tribes camped under the banner of Ephraim the ox. To the south were tribes associated with Reuben the man, and on the north were the tribes under the banner of Dan the eagle. So again, you have God surrounded by a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. And we see it again in the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 14 says of Jesus, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word translated dwelt means tabernacled. Like the tabernacle of old, Jesus was God's presence on the earth. And He was also surrounded by four faces. A lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Four Gospels recount Jesus' ministry and picture Him in four ways. Matthew was written to the Jews and portrays Jesus as the Messiah, King of the Jews, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark sees Jesus as the ultimate servant. He's the picture of faithfulness, an ox. Luke focuses on the humanity of Jesus. He is the man that all men were meant to be. And John focuses on the deity of Jesus. He is the Son of God over all men, the sovereign eagle. On earth and in heaven, God is surrounded by these four faces. The lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. And speaking of these four cherubim, there's motion. Their wings stretched upwards. Two wings of each one touched one another. And two covered their bodies And each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go, and they did not turn when they went. Wings imply great speed. Yet these speedy angels, they can stop and start on a dime. They operate in perfect synchronization. And they possess a unique steering mechanism. Wherever the Spirit wants them to go, they go. And Believe it or not, God has equipped us with this same steering mechanism. In the New Testament, we're told to walk in the Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to never quench or grieve the Holy Spirit. We, too, should be Spirit-driven. See, the problem with us isn't the mechanism, the the steering. It's the wheels. Human wheels, like you and I, are more fragile They're more inefficient than angelic wheels. Oh, that we would be more like the wheels on God's throne chariot. Sensitive to the Spirit. Willing to move where God says move. To start when God says start. To stop when God says stop. Is your tendency to move at the slightest twitch of God's will? should be. You know, whenever you analyze the steering on a car, you check the play in the wheel. That's what you do. How far do you have to move the steering wheel to steer the car? And this is the question for us. How much play 
is in our steering. We all need to let the Holy Spirit tighten our steering so that we move when God says move and stop when God says stop. We're sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Now Ezekiel says in verse 13, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning. These living creatures looked like hot coals on a barbecue grill. And the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like the flash of a lightning. Wow. Talk about a burst of speed. These angels move like lightning bolts. You know, General Electric estimates that the average bolt of lightning carries 100 million volts of electricity and a current of 100,000 amps. That's enough energy to keep your house lighted for the next 35 years. Apparently, these living creatures, these cherubim, they propel God's throne chariot, and they are tremendously quick. They're amazingly powerful. Ezekiel gives us one more detail here on the drivetrain of God's throne chariot in verse 15. He says, Now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color of burl, and all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. Let's define a few terms. The Hebrew color burl is a pale green. At times it appears as an emerald color. The term workings could be translated operations. So here's how this drivetrain operates. The wheels move like a wheel within a wheel, like a gyroscope. Think of it that way. Ezekiel saw a vertical wheel spinning in the center of a horizontal wheel, which was also spinning. And this provided God's throne chariot with unlimited aerodynamic maneuverability. It could make 90-degree turns. It could come to sudden halts. It could make vertical descents and climbs. It had instant acceleration. Man, I hope in eternity the Lord lets me take it for a spin. Pun intended. I'm asking God if I can borrow the keys. That'll be quite a day. Verse 17. When they moved, they went toward any one of four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. Ezekiel must have been a mechanical guy because here he watches with amazement how this chariot handles. He says, wow, this was so cool. And as for their rims, they were so high. They were awesome. And their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. Wheels have rims and guys love rims. Ezekiel says, man, these rims were awesome. God's throne chariot has these huge rims. God rides, God's ride has both wheels and rims. And these rims, they were full of eyes. Not spokes, but eyes. The imagery speaks of God's omniscience. 
He sees all. He knows all. Don't think you can ever do something behind God's back. His eyes are pointed in all directions. They were a little early on that. Verse 19. When the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, because there the Spirit went. And the wheels were lifted together with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. The Spirit of the angels directed the wheels. They spun in sync with God's will. Now when those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Now before I go any further, I want to discuss a subject that always comes up whenever we study this vision of Ezekiel chapter 1. And that is the possibility of UFOs and alien spacecraft. Do we have it now? There we go. The subject always comes up. You're about to enter the twilight zone. There are folks who like to attribute some of the Bible stories to extraterrestrial appearances and alien involvement. Some people have asserted that Elijah was actually taken up in a UFO, not a fiery chariot. The wise men saw a UFO, not a star. Jesus ascended to heaven in a UFO. The light that blinded Paul on the road to Damascus was that of a UFO. And their favorite, of course, there are folks who like to equate what Ezekiel saw in chapter 1 with a UFO. The fireball blast was the spaceship's engines. The spinning wheels were a flying saucer. The hand of the Lord was the pressure of a shoulder strap. The eyes in the rims of the wheels were portals in the revolving saucer. When Christopher Columbus sailed through the Bermuda Triangle, he wrote in his diary of a sighting, a phenomenon that had the appearance of a torch. The way he put it, it was like a small wax candle that rose and lifted up. Some people insist that the Spanish explorer witnessed a UFO sighting that fit the description of Ezekiel's fireball. A 2012 poll by the Kelton Research Group revealed that 36% of Americans believe that UFOs are real. One in ten say they have seen something that they thought was a UFO. Over the years, many supposed UFO sightings have been explained away as natural phenomena. There are lots of spurious sightings that can easily be dismissed. But there are some very credible reports. Military and NASA sources have bolstered the belief in UFOs. Fighter jet pilots from countries all over the world have reported following UFOs until they disappeared in a burst of supernatural speed of impossible turns. UFOs were supposedly sighted on two of the Apollo missions two of the Gemini missions, on three of the Skylab missions. In fact, here are two photos taken of an unidentified flying object on April the 30th, 2015 from the International Space Station. There are many more such photos. 
Even President Jimmy Carter reported seeing a UFO from his seat on Air Force One. That photo is actually fake, by the way. So, are UFOs real? Hey, I believe, it's my opinion, but I believe there have been legitimate sightings of extraterrestrial phenomena. But I also believe those objects haven't been properly identified. Here Ezekiel sees a saucer-shaped flying vehicle. But it's not an unidentified object. We know exactly what this is. It's God's throne chariot propelled by angels. Ezekiel knows exactly what he's seeing. Cherubim. You see, the reason people suggest that Ezekiel saw a UFO is because his description resembles the sightings of what people have seen today. But could the reverse be true? I believe that some people are reporting as UFOs and are assuming alien spacecraft. What they're actually seeing is what Ezekiel saw. Cherubim or angels. I believe that UFO sightings that we find today are actually physical manifestations of fallen angels. Now remember, Satan is a fallen cherub. He's a cherub. He's fallen. He's been cast down from heaven, but he's a cherub nonetheless. I would imagine that many of his demons are also cherubs. Could it be that Satan and his allies are involved in a global deception? What better way to one day explain the rapture, to explain it away, the rapture of the church, the sudden disappearance of millions of Christians? You can hear it now. Aliens have invaded. One author writes, The old angel of light is back in the sky with new aerial phenomena geared to capture and deceive a culture jaded yet credulously hunting for supernatural wonders in the heavens. Alan Hynek was an astronomer at Northwestern University and an Air Force investigator for Project Blue Book. In the 1970s, he believed that UFOs were manned by aliens from other planets. But by 1982, Mr. Hynek had changed his mind. A biographer writes, Hynek submitted that perhaps UFOs were part of a parallel reality, slipping in and out of sequence with our own. This was a hypothesis that obviously pained him as an empirical scientist. Yet after 30 years of interviewing witnesses and investigating sighting reports, radar contacts, and physical traces of saucer landings, no other hypothesis seemed to make sense to him. Hynek thought that UFOs were more interdimensional than interplanetary. Rather than from outer space, they were indigenous to Earth. He equated them with poltergeists, since they behaved, as he said, like ghosts or like demons. In their book, Close Encounters, A Better Explanation, authors Clifford Wilson and John Weldon pinpoint the aerodynamic problems that exist with UFO sightings today. In their movements, UFOs defy, they violate basic laws of physics. A physical craft traveling at the speed that these UFOs travel would create a sonic, supersonic boom. 
And yet most of these UFOs fly silent. UFOs have been clocked at 18,000 miles per hour. At that speed, a quick turn would splatter whatever passengers are inside against the walls of the spacecraft. Yet this all fits Ezekiel's cherubim. They had an otherworldly mobility. UFOs also change shape in size and color in mid-flight. They disappear instantly, nullifying mass and gravity. They form chains and they merge into one. And they're deaf at avoiding being filmed. All these traits are similar to powers associated with demons in the occult literature. It's also interesting to note the similarities between UFO sightings and occult rituals. The smell of sulfur, a rotten stench, astral projection, levitation, weird noises, mysterious fires, sexual contact, even rapes. Things that are associated with the occult are also associated with these kinds of UFO sightings. Some contacts have even been given the number 666 by the supposed alien. Other aliens have been described as wearing a uniform with a serpent on the chest. Alien abductees have told horrible stories of treatment by ETs that sound eerily similar to tales of demon possession. And invariably, aliens deliver an unbiblical message. A man named Albert Bender once founded a UFO group, but later mysteriously dropped out. A reporter later explained his reason. He became victim of strange paranormal experiences that left him drained and frightened. His house became haunted. He heard rapping on the walls and strange footsteps at night. Later, three men in black visited him and informed him there was no life after death, no God in heaven, Jesus was not God, and the resurrection was false. You see, Albert Bender's story became the inspiration for the comic book series and the movie entitled Men in Black. A UFO message is typically unbiblical. It's anti-Christian, and it's filled with ideas like reincarnation and other New Age propaganda. Again, I believe that the whole E.T. phenomena is a satanic setup to deceive people and to ultimately provide an explanation for the rapture. If the world thought that it was under attack by an alien invasion, don't you know they would want to quickly come together under a one-world government? Perhaps this is what will give rise to the Antichrist, the global ruler spoken of throughout the Scriptures. Today, there are cults that believe in alien saviors, that this is the planet's only hope. We need to be saved from some higher intelligence, from outside our, our domain. In fact, they've built alien landing pads. They hope to make contact with extraterrestrials. In San Diego, there's a group that has a sign, Welcome Space Brothers. In the end, all the world may fall for this satanic ruse. Well, back to the text. Verse 22. The likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. Now see, Ezekiel has been looking under the hood of God's throne chariot. It's wheels within the wheels. 
Now he looks at the throne itself. The chassis of the chariot or the base of the throne was like a crystal, he says. It's interesting, John provides a similar description in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. He writes, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures. The cherubim were under the chassis. A crystal expanse was out in front. And under the firmament their wings spread out straight, one toward another. Each one had two which covered one side, and each one had two which covered the other side of the body. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. As Ezekiel takes all this in, he hears the throne chariot suddenly crank up. God turns the key on. And it sounds like the roar of a waterfall. Imagine the noise of marching troops, the rumbling of heavy equipment, the sound of angels' wings isn't soft fluttering. Rather, think a top-fueled dragster. That's the idea. And when they drop their wings, it kills the engine. Revelation 1, verse 15 This is how John described the voice of the glorified Christ today in heaven. His voice was as the sound of many waters. If you want to know what Jesus sounds like today, imagine standing on the beach in a storm and listening to the sound of the waves crashing the beach. Or think of the deafening roar at the bottom of an enormous waterfall. This is how Jesus sounds today in heaven. His voice is booming. It's overwhelming. It fills heaven's halls from wall to wall. His voice drowns out all others. Remember when Elijah got scared? He tucked tail. He ran from the evil queen Jezebel. He went to the mountain of the Lord, Mount Sinai. And there God appeared to him. At first, a great wind busted the face of the mountain. Rocks crumbled around him. But the Bible says God was not in the wind. Next, an earthquake shook the mountain. But God was not in the trembler. After that, a fire scorched the mountainside. But again, the Lord was not in the fire. Finally, Elijah hears a still, small voice. God spoke in a whisper. God was in the whisper, not the noise. And today, a big part of Christian discipleship is learning how to quiet our spirit and listen for that still, small voice. This is how he speaks to us today. We live in a high decibel world. We have so many voices commanding our attention. This is why we need to discipline ourselves, to quiet our hearts, to cultivate a familiarity with God's still, small whisper. And yet it's also exciting to know that one day, Jesus' voice is going to drown out all other voices, and all other noises. That when Jesus speaks, we will hear nothing else but Him. Everyone else will have to shut up when Jesus speaks. Verse 25. A voice came from above the firmament that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings. And above the firmament over their heads was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone, 
On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Now Ezekiel finally sees God's actual throne. And it was like a sapphire or a bluish color. You know, you put this all together and Ezekiel saw a kaleidoscope of color in his vision. It made for a magnificent sight. God is into color. No doubt about it. Don't ever think of heaven as being sterile white, hospital white. You'll be disappointed. Heaven is going to be a colorful place. And here, Ezekiel sees the most stunning, the most jaw-dropping aspect of this vision yet. For he looks to see who is sitting on God's throne, and he sees the appearance of a man. I believe that this was a pre-incarnate sighting of Jesus. Notice Ezekiel doesn't say that a man was sitting on God's throne, but the person appeared to be a man. In the days of Ezekiel, Jesus had not yet taken on human flesh. But here our Lord is already appearing as a man. You get the impression that Jesus was chomping at the bit to get started on his mission. That he could hardly wait to come to earth as one of us and to perform God's redemptive work. We're told also from the appearance of his waist and upward I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around. Jesus engulfed, enveloped in the fire. This is how John sees Jesus. Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, His eyes were like a flame of fire, His feet like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. The visions of John and Ezekiel are very similar. Verse 28, Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Again, Revelation 4 verse 3 depicts a rainbow arcing above God's throne. But I love the detail that Ezekiel adds to the picture. He says, it was like a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. This fallen world that we live in, it's full of rainy, dreary days, isn't it? But all of us who know Jesus can look forward to a glorious future, to a bright and wonderful day. For one day we'll gather with the saints around the throne and we'll sing praises to our great King and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then lastly, Ezekiel tells us his reaction to the vision that he's received. So when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard a voice of one speaking. He fell on his face. He hit the deck. This is how John responded to the vision he saw of Jesus in Revelation 1 verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. You see, a vision of God in his throne will wipe you out. It's always a life-altering experience. You remember when Jacob met God at Penuel and wrestled with him all night long? He was injured in the process. The angel touched Jacob's thigh and crippled him. For the rest of his life, Jacob walked with a limp. When Paul saw the Lord Jesus on the road, 
The light was so bright that it blinded Paul and caused a debilitating eye problem he battled for the rest of his life. When Moses encountered God on Mount Sinai, he came down from the mountain with a divine shine. His skin glowed and radiated with the glory of God, so much so that when he was around the people, he had to wear a veil. Suffice it to say, a vision of God is not a trivial, run-of-the-mill matter. It costs you something. You're never the same after you meet with God. God's presence changes us. His fiery countenance melts us. His glory rubs off on us. This is what Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Realize it's spending time with God that shapes a life for God. The more we're exposed to God's glory, the more we become like Him. Glory rubs off on us. Vision always comes before instruction. Hey, we see, then we serve. We know, then we go. Ezekiel saw God on His throne. Then he fell on his face. And God speaks to him. And what he says, we'll begin to explore next week. Same time. Same channel.